Two and a Half Admins, Episode 5. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And we've got a question about VMs coming up, but first a couple of news stories. And the first one was a register article. The headline is, it could be five to ten years before the world finally drags itself away from IPv4. And so I'm wondering, is that ridiculous? Or do you two think that that is realistic? Are we really that far away from the move to IPv6 by default? Easily. Yeah, easily. Um, like even 10 years, we're definitely still going to have some V6 or V4 going on. It's it's not going anywhere. Why not? People are lazy and don't want to change things. There's still software that doesn't work with it properly. And I think the biggest blocker right now is that if you enable something with V6, you'll start getting complaints from people who have incorrectly configured V6 somewhere that's actually causing it to break or something. I think there's a more basic problem than that. I mean, uh, V6 is supposed to, and this was probably a mistake, but um, V6 comes with it this assumption that we're no longer going to have, you know, private non-routable IPs behind a firewall with public routable stuff. And everything by default is behind that firewall. IPv6 comes with this assumption that like every single thing in your house is going to be wide open to the internet all the time. And nobody is ready for that. When you go to try to enable IPv6 on consumer routers, uh, whatever firewall settings you set up for IPv4, you've got to set up something completely different for v6. There's no overlap. And again, even the core concepts are so different because nobody's expecting that. They're expecting instead now you're going to have to do a real firewall like per IP or else set up like, you know, zones and groups and nothing is prepared for that on the the consumer side, the small business side. I don't know about enterprise gear. What about stuff like PFSense? Is that not set up for it? It is, but again, you you do need different rules because it's basically a separate internet. It just happens to use the same wires. It's a separate internet with separate entire concepts and all of the work that you did in setting up all of your privacy and security and everything on V4, completely unrelated to whatever you do on V6. So at, at absolute best, you have to do everything right twice. And, you know, it, this is two and a half admins, right? So hopefully we all know you don't set something up where you have to duplicate everything and get it right twice in a row. You, you, you need to merge that. And we haven't even vaguely done that yet. But, you know, the adoption is increasing. Like, Partly because most people's cell phones, cell phone companies now mostly are giving you V6 and then doing something like carrier grade NAT to V4 because they just don't have the addresses. And like if you're on Comcast or a couple of the other big providers, uh, they'll set up V6 uh, to the router now. And so like if you're pulling Netflix, it's going over V6. Uh, so, you know, even when we get to the point where half of all the internet traffic is over V6, it doesn't really mean we're that close to being using V6 for everything. Cause it just means your phone is doing V6 to Facebook and, you know, your TV is doing V6 to Netflix. So it doesn't really mean that many of the websites out there are going to be over V6. The other thing I think that's driving, you know, what V6 traffic we do see out there is, uh, Google has, you know, like if you want to set up a mail server right now, you better get Sixbone set up right on it and set up all the IPv6 DNS and everything else, or Google's not going to accept your mail. Hmm. Yeah, trust me on that one. Found out the hard way. Like they just turned that on one day and all of a sudden, nobody at a Gmail address could get, you know, email from, from me or several of my clients anymore until I updated, you know, all of their mail servers with uh, working v6 addresses and working uh, quad A records in DNS. 
As in, couldn't be delivered at all or went to spam or what? Could not be delivered at all. Google would just be like, nope, screw you. You don't have proper reverse DNS, you know, for this quad A. So, uh-uh, you're, you're clearly not anybody I want to talk to. And I don't know if or where Google notified, you know, like other mail providers in general about that, but I certainly didn't get the memo. I just woke up one day and delivery to anything Gmail related no longer worked and I had to figure out why. This was a a few years ago now. More fuel on the fire of don't roll your own email server, just rely on Google. Well, that's what Google and Facebook would really like. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, there's, it's such a pain in the ass. I can understand why people choose that. But, you know, at the same time, currently email is still the only really federated system we have where you can have your own. What about Mastodon, Alan? What about Mastodon? Oh, That's social media. (laughs) That's not message delivery. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair to Joe, no, I don't recommend that anybody else roll their own mail server. The only reason I'm still doing it in a few very limited circumstances is because I've known how since the 90s. I mean, like if you're starting from scratch right now and and you'd be like, oh, man, I want to set up my own mail server. I mean, more power to you, but it's it's certainly not going to be a thing of like, wow, I'm really glad I did that because this is so much better. Yes. Well, and I think the the biggest thing you pointed out is like, Mail only really makes sense if you control the IP addresses you're sending the mail from. And I mean, like, really control them. And most times, especially in a smaller scale and people starting out now, you're not going to. And yeah, you're just going to give yourself constant headaches with people not getting your emails. Yeah. And I will say now, one of the big benefits that you do get out of rolling your own mail server, and this is also one of the reasons that I haven't just, you know, trashed mine and turned everything over to Google or or Microsoft for the SMTP stuff is... um, if you deal with equipment, um, like I have uh, small business clients that, you know, they have these really, really stupid uh, copiers that want to do scanned SMTP. And some of them need completely unauthenticated SMTP. And like, you're not going to get that, you know, anywhere else. Some of them will theoretically go to Gmail, but, you know, Google changes their stuff all the time. And if you set up your own infrastructure, even when it stops working, you have access to the logs and you can see why. Whereas when Google stops accepting scans from somebody's copier, all you know is it stopped. You know, nobody at Google is going to pick up the phone and tell you, oh, well, you know, we see this is what was happening when your copier was trying to connect to our servers. No, that's not going to happen. Even if you're like logged into the Gmail account and trying to make it talk to another mail server to pick up mail into your Gmail account or whatever, and it has an error. It's it's like super cagey about the error message and stuff, and it doesn't make it easy to solve at all. So apart from the mail server use case, do you two ever use IPv6 in your day jobs then? Uh, in my day job, yes. At home, no. So like the computer I'm sitting at right now does not have IPv6 set up, even though I have a slash 64 for my house. Now, my machine in the office downstairs does have V6 uh, because a lot of our servers do and I need to get it there. But also uh, the FreeBSD project has more machines than they have IP addresses. So like a lot of our package builders are in our V6 only. So if you want to connect to them, you have to have access to some kind of V6 to, to reach them or, you know, connect to a jump host first. And then you know, that does have V6 and then go from there. I understand V6 and, and so on. It's just... Yeah, I don't, I don't see that it would add any value to have it on my desktop because it would just occasionally break or something. Yeah, mail servers are it for me, and I, I feel somewhat bad about it, but you know, there's a, a significant investment 
and getting fully up to speed on V6. And there's nowhere that I would get a return from that right now. I have far more machines to manage than I have public IP addresses, but I don't care because I have enough public IP addresses for one per site. And from there, you know, I can use WireGuard or, you know, just SSH or some other way to get on the inside into the, you know, nice crunchy land bits. And there I can go anywhere I want there. Well, and then it's just one nine twos from there on. Well, usually actually one seven twos or 10 dots so that uh, it's a little bit easier to separate things where you don't end up with two sites on the same subnet. Because if both sites are 192.168.0 slash 24, you can't VPN between the two of those. So not route anyway. But um, I mean, at this point, I've, I've got a working setup that's secure and functional and sane. And I literally can't tear out V4 to replace it with V6. So the only thing that I could do with V6 would be to introduce another thing to maintain that worked completely differently. And now I've got, you know, at least double the attack surface and honestly, probably more as well as, you know, more things to break. That it really goes to what you were saying at the beginning is like, because V6 doesn't replace V4 currently, it's not worth having both. And so if I have to pick one, it's like, well, the one that works for everything or the one that works for some stuff. It's the same reason why we haven't come up with a better protocol for email that would be harder to do spam and so on, because you could never get the oldest machine on the internet to upgrade. So we can't kill off V4. So, you know, we muddled through and there are projects to like try to reclaim the old experimental range of IP addresses like uh, 240 and up, because that would be a whole bunch of extra IP space that right now is just only for experimental use. But you know, it could run into some of the problems like we have with the very early subnets, like um, the one dot. Uh, if you remember for quite a while, that was just on a lot of people's bogon lists of addresses that there shouldn't be traffic legitimately coming from 1.2.3.4. But at some point, we started having those addresses and, and giving them out in China and so on. Because I remember yeah. the, the 4 slash 8 uh, subnet, for a long time, there was a little VPN client from a company that eventually got bought by Logmian that did a, a VPN using four dot something IP addresses. It's like, yeah, but those are real internet readable IPs, yeah, but nobody's using them. It's like, well, eventually that, that block got issued to the to Chinese ISP or whatever, and they needed it to work. I think to, to really get us where we need to be with that, um, probably the first and the biggest step, and I don't know how you drive OEMs to do this, like all the home and small business routers would have to start supporting and maybe even preferring an IPv6 uh, WAN side, but still just doing four to six conversion from LAN to WAN. And so everybody's still doing what they're used to inside the house. But now at least once you're in proper internet space, everything works right. But nobody's doing it that way now. Right now, if you go V6, it's like, oh, yay, we're V6, no more NAT. And that just breaks too many paradigms too thoroughly. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on. And... A quick update on these Western Digital SMR red drives. Some idiot over at Ars Technica got a hold of one and tested it. So the you know the, the too long didn't read is they actually in my testing at least they they work pretty decently with conventional RAID you know Lynx kernel RAID. They are slower than uh, than CMR drives, uh, but they rebuilt. In a new condition, they rebuilt in a thoroughly, you know, more than 75% used condition at, uh, you know, both at well over 140 megabytes a second, which it's not amazing. I mean, the the other drives that I had in the array, uh, Seagate Iron Wolf, now they were a little bit bigger drives and they were 7,200 RPM, uh, not 59, and they did over 200. So, I mean, 
again, they're not amazing, but rebuilding into the array at 140 megabytes a second, that's not the end of anybody's world, you know? Right. Well, in, in that particular use case, that I wouldn't expect to see much worse performance from SMR drives because the way SMR works is you basically have all these 256 megabyte append-only regions. Yeah. Basically, you can write on the end of it, but you can't go back and overwrite a block without lifting up the whole thing and rewriting it. So a sequential resilver, like from a, a hardware RAID, would just be all a contiguous linear write and shouldn't have any problems. So yeah, I imagine most of that speed difference there is just down to a bit of buffering and a bit, you know, the slower RPM and so on. But then when it came to ZFS, that's when things went wrong. Yeah, so um, give credit where credit's due. Serve the Home got there first and uh, got there with the mostest. They actually had a set of the uh, old Western Digital Red 4 terabyte conventional drives on hand, and they resilvered in one of the uh, the shingle magnetic recording. And it fell, you know, completely flat on its face, as people have been talking about, uh, you know, in general, like in Reddit and forums and whatever. Serve the Home demonstrated it, uh, where the conventional red would resilver in, I think it was like 13 hours. The shingle magnetic recording disc took 13 days from what I recall to, no, I'm sorry. It was 13 hours and nine days was, was the Delta. So it was horrible. It was like 16 times slower. And the big difference is that, well, there's a couple of differences there. One, as Alan mentioned, a ZFS resilver is not fully sequential, but I think even more importantly than that, ZFS is hitting the disks. When you're talking about a RAID Z resilver, um, it's hitting them with data in smaller blocks than MD RAID is. Uh, Kernel RAID works with a 512 kilobyte Kibibyte, uh, chunk size by default. And so that's the, the, the individual blocks that it's chucking down the pipe are already that large. And the firmware handles that really well. But when I tried, so <sighs> rambling a bit, Serve the Home did an actual ZFS resilver. I didn't see any need to redo what they had done, but I wanted to artificially, uh, you know, kind of generate the same workload and see where it would fall over. And what I discovered is that when I wrote data in 32, Kibibyte uh, chunks, you know, sequentially. Now it's asynchronous, so the system is able to, you know, aggregate these writes. But nevertheless, when I'm dumping it into the pipe in 32 Kibibyte increments, um, the firmware got confused, and sure enough, I went down from 140, 150 megabytes a second, screaming on down to just a little bit below 10, which was right at the same, you know, 15 to 16 to one slowdown that uh, Serve the Home had seen. So basically. Even if they're sequential, if you're throwing lots of chunks of small data at uh, the the SMR disks firmware, doesn't like it. It's not going to do well with it. Yeah, like looking at your graph here, the Iron Wolf was doing 184 IOPS or 210 megabytes a second, and the the SMR drive managed a whole 13 IOPS or like 12 megabytes a second. Yeah, it was not good. And in particular, the average wait time between them was 949 milliseconds per IOP. <laughs> wow. So they're, they're basically pretty bad. Well, it really depends on the use case. So, you know, it goes back to actually what Seagate said, you know, if for their use case, you know, when Seagate originally sold them as archive drives, it made sense for archive, right? You write out the archive and you don't modify your archive. Mm. It makes sense in that use case. But we're using it as a, a regular drive, that gets pretty iffy. When, when Seagate introduced this with the archive drives, half the point also was those things were freaking huge for the time, right? It was like, mm -hmm. thanks to SMR, we can make bigger drives than we normally would be able to, and we can sell them for more cheaply than we normally would be able to. But now, 
Um, and, on, and not just Western Digital, you know, Seagate's mm-hmm. not doing it in the NAS channel, but Seagate and Toshiba are both submarining these SMR disks into, you know, consumer desktop type drives. And they're tiny. They're doing this with like two terabyte drives, man. It's ridiculous. And they're, and they're not cheaper. They are not cheaper. Yes. Matter of fact, in some cases, the, the SMR disk is going for like 10 bucks more because it's a newer model. Yeah. I, what I didn't understand there was like, were they overestimating how much they were going to sell of those bigger SMR drives and they have like platters left over and they're just using them to build these smaller drives? Or is it just like the commodity per unit price? This means it's cheaper to make one set of these and use them for both. Like I, I'm not sure I understand. They're just pocketing the savings, honest. I mean, right? But like, are the savings actually that much? I, I mean, dude, it's enough. I mean, so so SMR allows you to get away with something like I think 30 percent more capacity on the disk. Um, so I mean, on a two terabyte drive, you're probably putting you know a platter less in the thing. You're probably cutting down a good maybe 15, 20 percent on your manufacturing cost. That's enormous if you're not passing that along to the consumer. If you're selling 100,000 hard drives, if you save a dollar, then that's a hell of a lot of money. I think it's a lot more than a dollar, honestly. Right. All right. Well, let's move on because we've talked about that before. If you want to get in touch with us, the best way is by email show at 2.5admins.com. And you can support creation of these episodes on Patreon. If you go to 2.5admins.com, there's various links there. You'll find it. And thank you to everyone who is supporting us on Patreon. It is very much appreciated. Let's do some free consulting then. The first one is from Michael. He says, I'm hoping you guys can weigh in on why someone would or would not want to use RAW or QCOW2 on ZFS. Offhand, I would think QCOW2 would have a performance benefit and RAW would mean you lose libvert snapshot capability. So, VMs and ZFS, which way do you go, RAW or QCOW2? I go QCOW2. It does not have a performance benefit. QCOW2 will actually underperform compared to RAW a little bit while it's thin provisioned. Um, once either is fully allocated, they perform pretty much exactly the same. And you can thin provision raw as well. Um, you can just use the truncate command and, you know, like truncate dash S 40 gigs file name dot raw. And you've got a 40 gig hole in your drive that, you know, will fill in as it goes. But yeah, you lose the, uh, the libvert snapshot capabilities. Um, honestly, I don't even use them, but once I figured out that I wasn't really giving anything significant away in terms of performance, I just continued to use QCOW2 so that if I ever want to use libvert snapshots instead of or in addition to ZFS snapshots, I got the option. Yeah, the big thing you get with a QCOW2 snapshot over a ZFS snapshot is that kind of ability to reintegrate it because they work kind of differently and a little bit maybe closer to a ZFS clone than, than just a ZFS snapshot. For my use case, it's almost always raw and probably 70% of the time is actually a ZVOL rather than just a flat file. But that's mostly just for management purposes. Oddly enough, the, either the QCAL2 or the raw files in my testing outperform the ZVOL. You wouldn't expect it, but I tested it. Right. It also depends which OS you're running. Sure. Are, are you doing QCAL2 stuff on uh, FreeBSD? I thought that was more of a Linux thing. Well, if you use QMU or, or something like that, um, Beehive is starting to get QCOW support. There was a talk about it at BSDCAN last week. But yeah, so th- one of the other reasons is the main thing I use RAW for is is because that's what Beehive does. But VirtualBox supports QCOW, although only somewhat. So part of the reason for RAW has been that. And there's just less chance of something going wrong compared to QCOW, although QCOW is pretty stable. So it's not like 
it's it's been over a decade since there was a, a real chance that QMU was going to yeah. munge your data because you were using QCow or something. I have literally never had a data corruption problem because of QCow2. Well, yeah, I don't think they've ever had any bugs like that since it became QCow2 instead of the original QCow. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that you missed that you can get with the libvirt snapshots is you can snapshot the system RAM as well as the storage. Right. So you're not going to do that with ZFS. Although it depends on your hypervisor, it might be able to do that into a separate file instead of inside the same file, although that might have disadvantages to you as well. Well, on vert, well, at least, you know, KVM and vert manager, you need QCow2 if you want to do like, you know, a full, you know, hibernated PS snapshot. Hmm. What about sparse though? Like, can you do that with ZFS? Yeah. Well, ZFS does that by default. So yeah, you can, you can do sparse files by default in ZFS. It loves to do that. Also, if you have compression turned on, even if you don't ask for sparse, if you write a block that is literally all zeros, it will store it as sparse anyway. But can you do that with raw? I don't think you can, can you, right? Yeah, absolutely. What I just said, truncate-s 40 gigs file name that raw, you got a 40 gig hole in your disk. I do that all the time on ZFS. Yeah, and so and with ZFS, even if you try not to, if you would literally, you know, pre-allocate and wait for it to write out 40 gigs of zeros, it will just ignore you and, and you'll notice that it only took a megabyte of space. Right. Or alternately, if you try to use like a system, you know, F allocate file, it will usually say fail because that's a stupid thing and you can't actually pre-allocate. This is a copy on write file system, genius. Yeah, it was usually the one that fails is uh, when you ask it to reserve the space so nobody else can take it. Yeah. And ZFS is like, yeah, that's not how ZFS works. So yeah, there's not really any disadvantage, I guess. Your main thing is you might get, if you have snapshots in QCOW, you will see slightly worse performance because you're basically doing copy on write on top of copy on write. Uh, and so QCOW is manually doing the copy on write for you in addition to what ZFS is doing. But that's only if you're doing the thing where you've actually like saved a snapshot and are saving the modification somewhere else. Usually you're only doing that in, a sh- in the short term, not the long term. Uh, so you're probably not going to see that much of a difference. So probably however your VM is now is probably fine and you don't need to worry about trying to convert it or something because you're not going to really notice. Yeah. Well, it's more about the future VMs that are created, I would have thought, what this question's about. Raw's more compatible probably, but QCOW is so widely supported it probably doesn't make a difference. Right, fair enough. Okay, so there's a question from me, and that is, how do you deal with an SSD when you get rid of it? Now, with a spinning Rust drive, I will um, use DBAN. Um, I know you can just DD whatever, but I, DBAN's just quick and easy for me. DBAN is not quick and easy. <laughs> DBAN is for bloody ever. Well, yeah, but it's quick and easy to start, and then you just leave it alone until you get that weird advertising screen at the end, and you know it's finished. When you're finished with this SSD, what are you you trying to sell it? No, right. So take, for example, someone has... Uh, got rid of their laptop or whatever and you want to install Linux on it and give it to someone else and nothing was encrypted ever on that SSD and so you don't want to give that person's data onto the next person so what? how do you deal with that? If you're actually concerned about the data, the only answer is a drill. <laughs> yeah, but then it's unusable. Yeah. Joe, there's 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 two answers to that. One is if that was your intent, you shouldn't have just used the thing unencrypted to begin with because it's an SSD. It's got practically its own freaking operating system and its firmware. Yeah. And you can never be absolutely certain you've touched every possible cell on the thing. They're over-provisioned, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. That's one answer. Um, set it up encrypted to begin with so you can throw away the key and not worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, your second answer, if you didn't do that, 
is um, just just PV from Dev Zero over it over the entire capacity. Uh, that's honestly that's sufficient. There might be a couple of random things hanging around in over over provision storage. But if the NSA wants your crap bad enough to try to take apart an SSD and get directly to cells in over-provisioned areas, I mean, they're just going to go through your trash anyway, right? They're going to send a dude yeah, out to yeah. your house. It's like James Micken says, if you're being massaged upon, no amount of magic fairy dust is going to save you. Yeah. So the other thing about that is it's it's a pretty good idea to do that anyway, because a lot of the time what you don't realize with like a you know four or five year old SSD, and you're like, I'm done with this. It's fine. Um, it may or may not really be fine. And you may see that when you do PV from dev zero over that thing, it starts out at, you know, 150 megs a second, maybe 350 megs a second. And then all of a sudden, at some point, it drops down to like 500 K a second and stays there for hours. In which case, the answer is you don't give that thing to anybody. You throw it away. It's it's trash. And you just didn't really realize it. Yeah. If you're really worried about it, put it in a shredder or, or drill holes in it or whatever, and just buy a different $50 SSD to put in to give it to the other person or have them buy it or whatever or sell the laptop with no hard drive in it because yeah dban is especially with an ssd or anything that has flash in it you're never going to guarantee you actually got all of the data off of it now and and if you're not going to do that you might as well do what jim said just writing dev zero over the whole thing is going to get as much as dban was going to get uh, but isn't going to go overboard with stuff that wasn't going to help you anyway. Yeah. Also, let's let's go ahead and get this out there. Literally, nobody has ever actually proven that anybody in any case has successfully gotten data off of a drive that just had zeros written, a conventional drive yeah. that just had zeros or ones written all over it. That's like that's a that's a boogeyman story. Like, oh, the NSA is going to get it and they're going to do this weird forensic thing. Or somebody's going to have an electron microscope. And it's like, yeah, well. So we'll overwrite it, you know, 10 times with 10 different kinds of random. But yeah, it's, it's all crap. Um, and in SSDs, it's, there's even less of a point because it's not magnetic media. There's a freaking charge state. If you wrote a zero to it, you zeroed it out. So just PV from dev zero over the th- whole thing. Don't even bother PVing from like, you know, a fast random source like OpenSSL or whatever. There is no point. Just use zeros. Be done with it. Although somebody's going to make an SSD with firmware that does compression <laughs> and it's going to see all the zeros and take up like no space and it's not going to overwrite very much of the drive. <laughs> yeah. So you think that DBAN is overkill for spending rust then? Good Lord, yes. Basically, if you care that much, don't reuse or sell the hard drive drill fucking holes in it <laughs> yeah you're not going to find an enterprise debanning drives they either don't care or they drill holes in it or you know dump it in like one of those crazy industrial shredders yeah car shredder there, there's no such thing as secure erase if you care beyond oh all right good enough nobody's going to plug it in and you know nobody's just going to plug it in and mount my file system you you either say that's sufficient you know that i know that nobody's going to well, even a step beyond mount the file system. You say, okay, nobody's going to plug it in and, you know, load up a, a hex editor and look and see, you know, my Word documents that are still on there. Like, maybe that's a concern. Well, PVing over it with Des Zero solves that every time. If you have security issues that aren't solved by just writing zeros over every block, then yeah, you need to put that thing in a shredder. Throw it into Mount Doom, whatever. It needs to be gone. If, if you need that middle ground, that's what the self-encrypting drives are for. The point is you change the key in the hardware and now the hard drive is full of data, but it's it's all scrambled because we reset the encryption key to something different and so none of it decrypts properly. Although again, you don't need hardware for that either. You can just use Luke's. Yeah. I never trust the hardware ones anyway. So yes, you would end up using uh, Luke's or, or Gelly or something like that. And so you would always say that you should 
uh, encrypt an SSD if you're going to use it then? No, I wouldn't say that. I would say if you have this particular use case where you're worried about what happens to a drive that leaves your control, then yes, you need to encrypt it. That's not going to be everybody's level of paranoia or concern. And I'm not going to sit here and say it has to be. But like, if that's your gig, like I, I want to know that if this drive is not in my possession, then nobody's going to have access to my data, then yeah, you should be using encryption. Yeah, same. Basically, I never give away my hard drives. <laughs> uh, so I, I never think about it. You know, most of my drives are not encrypted, but it's because uh, they're in my possession. If someone wants to steal it, then, you know, that's not a threat model I'm not worried about. And honestly, you know, for the SSDs, again, even if you did encrypt it, I mean, presumably you're not, you're, you're giving this to like friends and family. So you want them to have a good experience. So you still need to PV it with zeros over it to make sure that it's actually in workable condition. You haven't just given somebody a nightmare. Yep. All right. Well, we better get out of here then. Uh, remember you can email us show at two dot five admins.com if you want to ask questions and you can find links to everything at just two dot five admins.com. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.